From the University of California, Irvine, this is the UCI Podcast. I'm Brian Bell. UCI is a leading institution for polar ice research. Glaciologists in the Department of Earth System Science have perfected techniques using satellite remote sensing technologies and an array of instruments to measure ice thickness, the contours of the ground beneath ice sheets, and the temperature of seawater that lurks beneath the front of glaciers that are flowing into the ocean. Through this work, UCI scientists and their collaborators from around the world have been able to develop a much more accurate picture of the dynamics driving the rapid collapse of polar ice sheets. And with that information, they can now make more precise predictions about the effects of climate change-induced sea level rise on coastal communities around the world. One of the leading figures in the cryosphere studies community is Eric Rignot, UCI professor and former chair of the Earth System Science Department. He recently completed a six-year mission funded by NASA called Oceans Melting Greenland, or OMG. For this project, Rignot and his colleagues at UCI and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory took to boats and small aircraft to conduct a thorough survey of the coastal regions of the world's largest island. This episode of the UCI podcast includes a discussion with Professor Rignot about OMG and the impact of climate change on polar ice. That discussion is up next. Professor Eric Rignot, uh, welcome to the UCI podcast. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about your project that you had going with NASA JPL for six years, I believe, uh, Oceans Melting Greenland, and yes. uh, it has just come to a conclusion at the end of this past year. And so tell us a little bit about this uh, this project that you had and, and uh, what you learned and, and uh, how you did it. Yes. So that's the OMG project, right? uh, funded by NASA. Uh, it's a suborbital mission, so it was operated mostly with airplanes, but also included ships. And the goal of that project was to um, study uh, how much of the uh, Greenland ice sheet is melted uh, as a result of a warmer ocean. You know, what is the role of the ocean in the, in the melting of land ice in Greenland? It's kind of an open question. So. The main goal of this mission was to go get the answers in Greenland uh, using a, a suite of uh, remote sensing tools and in-situ measurements. Uh, this project was uh, planned to last five years. It was actually extended to another year because uh, things worked so well, so smoothly, and uh, we got excited by the results we got in the first five years. Um, now it came to an end, and um, I think we we're very satisfied overall that we accomplished pretty much all the objectives that we wanted to achieve and even more. Would you say that you learned something about the ice sheets and Greenland that you did not expect? Uh, did you get any big surprises while you were there? Well, so one of the beauty of this project was not to focus on a couple of places in Greenland, but actually look everywhere in Greenland, all around Greenland, not leave a single spot unsurveyed. That, that's always really important when you look at uh, a part of the Earth system to make sure that your findings or your opinion are not biased on the fact that you look at a little area, but the glacier next door is doing something different. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, I would not, I would not 
delve into long details that we, we did find that the ocean plays a major role in evolution of these glaciers. Uh, this was uh, sort of uh, culminating in the paper that uh, my PhD student Mike Wood published uh, in, uh, in Science Advance, uh, summarizing what we found about the largest 200 glaciers in Greenland that they responded to warming of the ocean waters, and that's controlling in a large part what the glaciers are doing in Greenland today, and in a large part the overall melting of, uh, of land ice in Greenland. The other component is the one that we're most familiar with, you know, in a warmer climate, the snow and ice are melting from above, generating a lot of meltwater, and uh, we know that very well. The ocean part is a bit more challenging, because that ocean heat is not found at the surface, it's several hundred meters below the surface. We did not know how deep these fjords were and whether they hosted warm water or not. Uh, we really needed to go there and find out. And so you used instruments to measure the temperature of the water deep down as well? Yeah, so there were um, a, a number, of, a suite of instruments that we deployed. One major one was actually to launch temperature salinity probes, robotic devices uh, in the ocean all around Greenland and doing that in as many places as we could and, and repeat that every year. So that could be used to document the presence or not of warm water in some of these fjords. And, and for some of them, these robotic devices were taking one measurements and was in the later part of the mission, we launched robotic devices that can survive and do this yo-yo in the ocean waters and transmit back data to the satellite and um, continue their work while we're gone for months. Uh, so we so can, you just kind of plant them there and then go away and then... They, and yeah, we plant them there. You have to strategize a little bit because they are carried around by the currents. So you have to strategize, you know, how you make them surface and go down and things like that. But uh, And then they are launched in an environment that's full of sea ice and icebergs, so it's not necessarily straightforward for them to survive a long time. Uh, but we've, we've had great success with them, and we've been able pretty much to document whether it's warm water around Greenland and whether it's not. And by repeating that over time, over six years, we've been able also to document changes from year to year. That yeah, I was just going to ask that. Did you see a difference from year one to until year six? Yeah, and we, we saw a lot of variability. Uh, in one year, you could find that the Disco Bay was really cold that year, and uh, you might ask yourself, well, what's going on here? Well, suddenly it got cold, and uh, it lasted a couple of years, and then the warm water came back. Uh, so all that dynamic is, uh, is interesting because we see the glaciers respond almost real time to that. They... On a cold year, some of these glaciers don't melt as much and they slow down their retreat. And in the warm year, they melt more and we see them speeding up. So being able to see that dynamic, not just the static field, was, uh, was extremely interesting. What is the impact of warm water on the underside of these glaciers? How does that work? So the source of ocean heat in uh, polar regions is at depth. It's not like in uh, regions where we live here, where most of the warm water is at the top. Uh, in the polar regions, it's at depth, it's more saline. That's from the formation of sea ice. It, it rejects a lot of salt and makes this warm water stable at depth. And so it's, it's present at the, at the root of the glaciers, and um, it can melt the glaciers very fast, especially since it's at depth. The freezing point of, of, uh, of, of seawater is also changing with depth. 
so it's easier to melt deep ice than it is at the surface. And, and the rates of melt of the ice uh, from the ocean are 10 to 100 times larger than what's happening at the surface. So in a way, you could, you could say that uh, melting of these glaciers is from below more than from above, mm. uh, from this warm water. Your work involves a lot of measuring the, the surface of the ground uh, around the, the huge island of Greenland. Is that right? Uh, so you well, like where the the sort of pitch and angle of the ground as it meets the ocean, and where the grounding line of the glaciers is, and and it, whether that's prograde or retrograde slopes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So you're right. We we're very interested in the geometry of the bed. Um, beneath the glaciers because that controls the rate of retreat or stability of the glaciers. That's an aspect that's been uh, sort of well addressed by Icebridge, the NASA Operation Icebridge, which started uh, about six years prior to OMG. With OMG, however, we've been able to refine a lot of that because we got some really high precision data about the depth of the bed in front of the glaciers. Instead of measuring it with radar through the ice, we measured it with acoustic sonars in front of the glaciers. So under the ice, we know where the bed is within 10, 20 meters. Uh, in the ocean, we measure it within a meter. Uh, we can even do better than that. So it's super precise. It helps us refine uh, what we thought we knew with Icebridge to say things like this glacier is standing on a ridge or this glacier is going down a steep slope uh, or this glacier is trying to climb up a, a steep slope. In almost every area where we have been able to do this mapping, it's essential to understand what the glacier is doing. If you don't have this information, you can just throw your hands in the air and say, I don't know what's going on. But with that information, you're able to make a better prediction about what's going to happen in the future? We're able to explain the glacier evolution of the past 40 years. So that's, that's a big deal. The only places where we can't do that is actually where we didn't get the data. <laughs> Uh, so that, that shows that we really need to measure all these glaciers. But not only we need to measure the bed beneath the ice, we need to measure the seafloor depth in front of the glaciers because that seafloor depth controls how much of the ocean heat can come into contact with the glaciers. In some fjords, you have a continuous deep trough that lets the warm water reach the glacier very easily. In others, you can have a ridge in the middle, and that ridge is going to block the bottom water, the warmer water, and suddenly the glacier is actually protected from, uh, from the warmer water and the change in the presence of warmer water, Grand Greenland, triggered by climate warming. Right? Mm -hmm. Because all of this is related to change in atmospheric circulation around Greenland and how much of these warm waters come in contact with the glaciers. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's not that the warm waters were never there before. They've always been there, but the winds are pushing more of them uh, in contact with the glaciers. Mm. So knowing that geometry of the fjord also is, uh, well, that was exciting to do because you come into these fjords and you have no idea how deep they are. The maps are way off. And, and then you discover the exact topography of these fjords and then you realize, hey, now we understand why this glacier did that mm -hmm. and what this one did not. They are next door in the same climate regime. One retreated a lot and the other didn't do anything. Mm. Uh, it turns out that the other is standing in a shallower fjord. Well, some of them, they retreated into higher position of, of the ground. Uh, if you look at the surface when you're on a boat, you don't see that. You have to peer down 
in the water and see that the seafloor is rising here, and suddenly the glacier is protected from the warm water. Hmm. What are some of the major glaciers that you've really kind of had firsthand experience ex- uh, looking at exploring in Greenland? Uh, I know some of the names from the press releases we've done over the years, but what are what are some of the ones that really stand out to you as examples of, wow, this, this is a major sheet of ice that's really moving fast here? Well, so there's, there's lots of uh, important glaciers in Greenland. Uh, the, the one that people are most familiar with is the Jakob Savanisbury on the central west coast because that's the biggest one. It's a big tourist at- attraction. Uh, it turns out also that uh, it, has, it has been a little bit sometimes at odds with the other glaciers. <laughs> it has a dynamic of its own. So I was a little bit more interested in some of the glaciers that we did not know very well, especially in northwest Greenland where the prior mapping was, was very poor. OMG and Icebridge turned out over completely. It, it was the least well-known sector of Greenland, and now it's probably the most well-known sector of Greenland. These glaciers play a major role in the evolution of the ice sheet. I cannot name you one. There's, there's like 30 of them. Hmm. And uh, they, they're all deeply rooted below sea level, and, and they've all been retreating quite rapidly. It's also a part of Greenland that has probably been more affected by climate warming because the ocean was typically a little bit colder in this area. Most of the heat is in the southeast, not in the northwest. But with the changes in wind and circulation, suddenly more warm water went into Baffin Bay and melted these glaciers. So we, we saw more spectacular changes in these places that used to be cold and got warmer than the places that were warm and got a little bit warmer. Right? Mm, I see. Um, so now that Oceans Melting Greenland, OMG, is concluded, uh, is that your, the end of your time in Greenland, <laughs> or are you going back? No, it's not the end of my time. So, you know, we spend a lot of time mapping the bathymetry, and, and that was a big success of this mission. Is I think we, we sort of map the seafloor in front of all the major glaciers in Greenland. And honestly, when we started this project, I didn't think we could do that. I didn't think we had enough funding and enough time to do that, but uh, somehow the mapping worked super efficiently. So we spent the last few years focusing on the hard to get places, places where the boat can even cannot even go because there's ice all the time. So we have to go with uh, robotic devices. We have to go with helicopters. It's more time consuming, but these glaciers are important too. So there's still a few of those uh, that we're trying to get to. And there are also glaciers in the north that don't have a clean calving face in the ocean. They, they start floating in the ocean before they break up. Mm-hmm. And to measure the seafloor underneath these glaciers is much more challenging. You have a, several hundred meters of glacier ice floating. You have to go underneath that. Uh, we can't go with a boat. We can't go with a submarine. You can't do a submarine underneath? No, no you cannot swim. Uh, <laughs> so the the idea is to drill a hole and you, you, you can get one point measurement or to send robotic devices. So a lot of my sort of post-OMG activity now is to uh, invest a lot more on robotic technology, uh, which exists from all the research done in the open ocean, mm-hmm. and use that technology to explore... Uh, these areas that we have not yet been able to to map. Now, you and your colleagues have a recent paper in Nature Geosciences about uh, some 
uh, uh, Smith, Pope, and Kohler glaciers yeah. in West Antarctica. You've, yeah. all, you've done a lot of work in Antarctica as well. So tell me a little bit about the, how that work kind of relates to what you've d- done also in Greenland. Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's completely related. And um, some of the, uh, the glaciers uh, in North Greenland are a perfect analog to the glaciers in West Antarctica. In a way, they are a bit more accessible. Uh, you know, we can take a boat in Greenland. We fly to Greenland, we take a boat and go survey it. In the Antarctic, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot more complicated to do that sort of thing. And even if you have the boat and the funding, sometimes you can't get to the glacier. There's sea ice, weather. Uh, the area is seven times bigger than Greenland. Mm. The weather is more challenging. But the physical processes that we learn about in Greenland are the same operating in West Antarctica. So everything we learn about the way ice melts in the ocean, the way ocean heat circulates around Greenland and reaches the glacier is, is relevant to West Antarctica. One thing I would say that stands out of all of that is that the, the OMG exercise demonstrate that we need to do something similar in the Antarctic. If we don't have this extensive mapping and collect all these critical observations, we will not be able to, one, explain what we're seeing today, and two, make reasonable projection of what these glaciers are going to do tomorrow. Well, I want to thank you very much for the time you've spent with me today explaining your your research, and uh, good luck to you this year. Thank you, Brian. You can learn more about Professor Eric Rigneault's research by visiting the Department of Earth System Science website at www.ess.uci.edu. Also, there are dozens of press releases, feature stories, and other materials about glacier research in the UCI Newsroom at news.uci.edu. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Brian Bell. Thank you for listening.